Hi everybody, Future Tom here. In today's episode of Photographer's Coffee Morning, you're going to hear some audio problems. In my last episode, I mentioned that there have been a couple of recordings that were affected by some recording software that had gone awry. This is one of those episodes. I wanted to make sure this conversation still came to light. We talked to Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of the Musea, and the new photo app upcoming shortly. And I really wanted to make sure you guys benefited from the conversation. But in advance, I wanted to apologize for the sound quality. This is not going to be the way things sound going forward. But for this episode, we do have a little bit of kind of audio echo on my end. I managed to save Michael's audio, but my audio sounds a little bit, a little bit crunchy. Normal service will be resumed, but the next two episodes are going to have some slight audio problems on my end. Thanks again for your patience, everybody, and we'll see you again in the next one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Photographer's Coffee Morning. Today, I'm with Michael Howard, one of the original photography podcast hosts. Um, some of you may remember him from Musea podcast in around about 2010, 2012. He interviewed some of the greatest names in this industry, went on to open one of the best print labs in the United States, and is now developing a brand new app called Photo. Um, without further ado, we're going to get into the conversation and talk to Michael. So, Michael, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited to chat it up. It's not often that I actually get starstruck, but I genuinely feel that way right now because for me, like Musea was one of the gateway drugs of photography. I remember when I first started in the industry, I was at the time I was trying to get into wedding photography and things are going slow. And I remember listening back and and one of my highlights like early on was when you actually read one of my comments in your interview with uh, Jenny Jimenez, um, like way back when. Uh, it felt really fun to kind of realize that there was a community because frankly, this was all before like, Instagram, like Facebook was a thing, but it wasn't really a thing in the way it is now. Um, I think Creative Live had just happened and a few of the guests that you had had, had Creative Live episodes and that's really cool. Um, but actually, to be honest, that's where I kind of wanted to start because you kind of got in on podcasting on the ground floor. Like I'm sat here with a microphone in front of me, but you were doing this like 10 years before it was cool. So like, how did you, how did you get into that? What, what made you decide that you wanted to start doing a podcast of all things to promote your business? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, you know, the kind words. Like that means a lot. I don't know if you felt this making a podcast at times or when you're launching really anything is, uh, especially internet based that, it, it can be a little, feel a little lonely at times because sometimes you don't always hear back from your audience if they like it or not or what you're doing. So you just kind of just keep going to a degree and you hope somebody out there is liking and listening. So, um, yeah, so, so that means a lot that a lot of that effort I put in back then was not wasted. So that's, um, that's great. So it's encouraging for me. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, yeah, I started it probably for a couple reasons. Um, one, like, you know, it's marketing is always good. Um, but I always kind of have this belief that the best type of marketing is through education and helping people. And, uh, if you can do that, if you can help people kind of get from point A to point B, um, you know, then they'll, they'll remember you. And, um, if you need something in the future, then maybe you can, you know, ask for a favor if you need it. But, um, Ultimately, it's just about helping helping the community. I, th I think the photography industry historically has always been about kind of helping one another get from one place to another um, through assisting and just education. Um, there's just a long, long history of sharing knowledge within the photo uh, industry and, and through, you know, 100, 150 years. So for me, I, I guess I grew up 
when I got introduced to photography, I was kind of introduced to those kind of concepts and principles through um, the college I went to. And so for me, it just made sense. Like I would, if I'm going to start a photography company or something in the photo industry, I've always wanted to have that kind of ethos of, you know, the people that have been doing this for decades and decades. So just, yeah, just helping people. And it's just a really great, you know, it's an, it was a good excuse, uh, not only for marketing, but just to be able to talk to some people, uh, open some doors for me personally, just to chat with some people that um, I, I may not be able to talk to otherwise. And um yeah, it was, you know, interesting to be able to kind of shoot for the moon a few times and have them actually respond to you through email and actually agree to talk to you it was like, for me, it was kind of, um, you know, just kind of mind blowing at times. Some of those interviews I, I listened back to and I'm personally, I'm like, man, I wish I could have done a better job. It's a little cringy for me, but there's still a lot of great stuff in there. Cause I was just learning on the fly. Like, I don't know how to do this. I'm just kind of going with it and figuring out as I go. But, um, but yeah, it, it was great. And I, I'm hoping to do, you know, more and more podcasts in the future. Um, as you know, it can be very time consuming and I've, I've been having a hard time carving out enough time to do more of them. Like I would like to. I mean, honestly, that that's kind of the bottleneck really. Cause the, the time consuming element is, is the fact that like, if you're running any other kind of business, obviously you've run many, essentially have to carve out a day maybe two every time you want to do a podcast to get the recording done to go through and look check the scripts and make sure everything sounds great and now there's the kind of additional burden that you need to be doing video trying to clip things out for reels and it, it does feel like there's a huge amount of work involved and it's strange that you should say that the last podcast that i published was about the reason why the pace of the release of this podcast has slowed down a little bit because the fact is that if you want to make it sustainable, you need to work out those other elements. Like, how do you make it flow properly? And frankly, that was something else I wanted to pick up on because you were, you kind of mentioned this briefly in your introduction, but you were pretty much the first person that I was aware of to do a photography podcast that lasted more than a couple of episodes. And by the end of it, how many years were you running the Musea podcast? Like, what was the time scale like around them? Oh, Okay. Uh, I had to think probably th three or four years. Um, I would say like t 2012. I'm guessing I had to look back on the, on the timestamps on some of these. Um, yeah, I would guess 2012 to yeah, 2016 is kind of when I started, it started falling off. Maybe 2015 started falling off a little bit more. Um, but I, I was still really some, like I just even released a museum podcast like a few months ago. Occasionally I'll just throw one out there and there's still an audience for it. There's still people subscribe to the channel, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's, I think my dream is ultimately I need, I need to personally get it for me to do it the way I want to do it. I need to get in a position where I have a team around me that can produce this stuff where I can just basically do the interviews and then I have somebody that can edit and make out everything else so that, that's kind of my where i'm working towards right now is working with you know musea and hopefully with photo that eventually i'll be able to just be able to do a conversation with somebody for 30 45 minutes and then just pass it off and then everybody else will produce it and release it that way i don't have to spend the eight to 12 hours messing with it like you know you know it takes you had a huge like roster of guests that were involved in the podcast and some people that have been inspirations to me for a long time you had ryan Mayhead on uh, early on you had uh Horisti, you had uh, parker fitzgerald who honestly was one of my absolute uh, not idols because they weren't really idolized people but 
he was an absolutely incredible inspiration, really nice guy and amazing. And actually your interview with him was the first time I've actually heard him speak. But before that, you always look at the work, you'd see him in magazines and publications, and you, you kind of put the voice to it. And I always thought that one element that always kind of ran through every interview I ever did was the, the focus on history of art and the craft of photography. And it was interesting because at the beginning of the podcast, obviously you had, like you said, you worked for a news agency, then you were looking at doing wedding photography. And you kind of saw this transition as you kind of moved more and more into photography as an art form and a craft, and less so than you, you were particularly pursuing personally. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the projects that you moved into. So the Museum podcast happened, and there was, a, was there an attempt to do a workshop at one stage as well? Like, what, what did that look like? Yeah, I did a couple of workshops. So, well, it's called a gathering. And so I did four of them in person at the time. I did a, I don't know, say two or three, two, two in New York City, one in San Francisco and one up around the Seattle area. Um, trying to just dive a lot deeper um, into education in a more personal way. And, you know, for me, how I've structured the podcast and really a lot of every, all of my projects and a lot of stuff I do is it's not really about the gear as much. Um, I, I personally get very bored with like gear talk and all of that. I, I I'm more interested in why people do things like what are their motivations? Um, what are the themes running through their work? Um, just cause you know, when I went to school, I went through a fine art program. And so that's, those are the things we talked about. It was like, what are you trying to say? What are you, what's your visual opinion? What's your voice? Um, and I think that's where the fun, the fun stuff is, but it's the hard work that a lot of people have skipped over. Um, and they get, you can kind of get caught up in the gear and um, just the creating something that's visually interesting for a couple of seconds on Instagram, but that's kind of about it. It's not, there's not a lot of overall depth of their long-term for it. So when I created the gathering and the podcast, it was all about having those types of conversations of like, how do we push really deep? How do we really connect on a human level and an emotional level with people uh, to make work that really matters and will stand the test of time. And so that that's kind of anything I've ever done with photography has kind of had that theme and that thread running through it. I think the, the, the element of longevity as well is, clear like re-listen to the episode with parker and actually with uh, rodney smith as well in preparation for doing for doing this like having this conversation and one thing that stood out to me with parker especially was a lot of your conversation was like well why, why did you love like the, the central theme to your work why is japanese culture so important it wasn't tell me more about your likers it was always like no talk to me about where the work's coming from and from the point of view of longevity obviously after doing the podcast in the in the workshops the next element for you was the Musea Lab. So was that was that kind of an outpouring of this idea that you wanted people to think more about the work, about the quality of what they were making and to produce something that would have more of a legacy? Like what was the what was the rationale behind moving from primarily working on your own business into supporting other photographers telling those kinds of stories? Yeah, it was it was a couple of things. I mean Musea was when we originally started the company, Musea um in 2012, it was a software company. We were doing online proofing galleries. And so I was kind of started a blog and the podcast to kind of help market and build an audience around what we were doing. Um, 
and publicly, you know, I haven't really gone into a lot of details about the software side, but, you know, I, I essentially r- ran out of money in like two years. Um, of course, building software then was in 2012 was a lot different than building software now. It's still hard, but it's not as hard. <laughs> um, and so I had always had the idea of connecting the print lab to our online gallery system so we could control the whole loop from a business perspective and have a kind of a holistic ecosystem where you're, you know, people are ordering prints and then instead of connecting to a bunch of other labs. And I was, I'd always printed my portfolio for like my weddings and my commercial work and things like that myself at home. And, and I learned in the dark room. I've always been tied to printing, printing work and the value of, you know, an image really isn't, um, doesn't really live in a way until it's actually printed. And so I just, you know, started printing out of my house 2014 for people. We were really going to tie it to the software and it just kept growing at a really quick pace that I, we ended up just shutting the software side down because we couldn't, we couldn't logistically run both at the same time. And, um, yeah, so with, it's been, um, immensely personally gratifying. Yeah. To, to work with prints and papers that are meant to last like one to two centuries. Um, I always felt that professional photographers often weren't printing on the best paper and they were, you know, there was always kind of a race to the bottom, especially when digital came along, there's been a lot of pressure to lower prices as much as possible. And a lot of times people that were selling prints and things, it also meant using really inferior products and things that weren't going to last. And I've always had the perspective of if you're going to do something, do it right and use it, you know, produce something that would be in a museum essentially as an archive. Um, whether it's a family heirloom type piece where it's more of a personal thing, but you still want that family history passed down generations later uh, and not printed on some paper that's just worth 25 cents just seems, you know, kind of ridiculous to me <laughs> to a certain degree, unless you're just going high volume and you need like, four, you know, 400 prints, then you know, economically you have to go cheaper, but we often don't need that many images in our lives. And so, you know, those key, key images of family and friends and just artwork, um, you know, they need to be preserved and they can, they'll look better, colors will look better and they'll, um, you know, last in the test of time. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Um, it's been a lot of learning curve for me to learn how to do cause I've had to teach myself some of this stuff <laughs> and how to run a print lab. But, um, yeah, it's been personally yeah gratifying to print stuff for people and know that they're getting like the best of the best type of quality out of it you're right like people don't really think about print quality enough and actually for me i, I teach workflows like one of my primary methods of income right now it's one of my main main things and all the time people talk about equipment talk about presets but very often the ball gets dropped right at the end when it's like well what are you going to do with this you get people asking questions like should i calibrate my monitor should I be doing this or that? And very often the, the kind of end result, the answer to that question is, well, what are you going to be doing with these images? Because if the intention is that you're just going to send this stuff online, it's going to live on your website or it's going to live on like Instagram. Close enough is kind of close enough because you don't know what the other person's going to have to view those images. If people are only using their iPhones to view it, making sure that it looks good on an iPhone is important. But then having a good relationship with a lab 
is vital because if you're not going to go that extra step to make sure it's 100% accurate, you need to know that your lab can advise you on what papers can reproduce the, the tones that you want, you can get the colors that you're looking for, as well as like being able to stand the test of time, like you said, like the, the legacy is important. But equally, if you're printing on a photo rag paper, but you've got a really glossy, high production style, you're not going to have a good time. It's going to be awkward and uncomfortable because it's not going to give you the results that you want. And I think very often it's strange because print seems to be the missing element. Like there's no agreed upon standard for digital like calibration. And unless you can actually see something real and physical in your hand, you're never really going to know how that works going to look to your clients. Yeah, you're correct on all that. And if as a photographer, as an artist, if you want to control how your work is perceived and viewed, the only way you have 100% control is through print um, because you have no idea you know, if somebody's on a 2015 Android or like, you know, you have no idea. How, and, and it, the digital experience really, you know, diminishes um, the viewing experience in a lot of ways, attention span, and also just, color accuracy and all of that so a print allows you to control it and you get exactly you can get it exactly how you want somebody to enjoy that print for years and years and years and there's um you know the, the only con- other factor outside of that is just the quality of light that there is viewed in um but um but yeah and it's fun like it, it's very daunting for people to print because there's so many other things to learn and like editing for prints a little is different than editing for web and so you're kind of having to learn some new skills and things like that, but it will, it will a hundred percent, a thousand percent make you a better photographer if you understand how to print and how to edit for print. Um, just, you know, cropping and just thinking at thinking about the end product while you're working and out in the field and photographing. Um, it just kind of sharpens and hones in your vision even more. Um, and there's so many great papers and things to play with. There's so many great paper companies, not, not even mentioning like framing and all the things you can do with something to really make an image pop. Um, making a great photograph is hard. And then when we really get those great ones, I think they always deserve to be, you know, printed. And it always breaks my heart because I see so many great images online. And I just know like 95% of the time it's never going to be printed or probably hung up anywhere. And I'm just like, man, like that needs printed. That needs printed. Like that's amazing shot. That needs, you know, somebody needs to be living with that on their wall and viewing it all the time, not just for two seconds on Instagram. So I think that's interesting as well, because photography as an art compared to say video, for example, is it's something that you meant to linger on a little bit more. Like video is very much like it's not an ephemeral medium, but it's the kind of thing you want progression, you want movement, you need to see things change and, and, and evolve. And I'm kind of interested to get your take on this. So obviously, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is that you just started development, or you're currently developing the photo app, which is obviously on the, the very far end of the spectrum. Like it's it's something that is purely digital first. It is going to be serving imagery. It's going to be trying to spotlight photographers' work. It's going to be trying to find a legacy in an archive because I think genuinely correct me if i'm wrong the reality is that the vast majority of work will be solely consumed on digital devices and that's only going to increase as time goes on and for me i i actually i like that i think that it's it's an interesting way of changing the way we look at image making um whether that be convergence of stills and video and looking at building motion into portfolios 
And there's some absolutely incredible work being done right now with people doing like motion portraits as part of documentary projects and all sorts of really interesting takes on like motion as a medium. And those things can't exist in print in the same way that a, a photograph could have done. But I think the, the point that you made, and quite rightly, is that the legacy of photography and, and the kind of craft of it was meant to be printed. Like when you talk about things like the zone system, even simple things like exposure, Ansel Adams designed that around the, the kind of the maximum amount of tonal range you get from a print. That I can print 10 stops of, of light on this paper and have it look good. How do I assign like my tones to make sure they map correctly? And that's fundamental to how we work. And in stills that we, we're working in a color space that's similar to what a filmmaker would, would use, like Rec 709 or SRGB, most of the time. And the papers that we produce can sometimes fully represent that color space, sometimes a little bit more. But I, I think there's, a, there's kind of a separate challenge to be worked out as to about how we, we make digital imagery, as you said, a little bit easier to surface for longer periods of time, something you can digest a little bit more slowly, something that can kind of gratify the artist something that you can enhance with multimedia and kind of bring more elements into. So it's kind of interesting in seeing, like, obviously you've got such a strong attachment to print. How do you think that's going to play into you developing this platform for photographers, like this, this photo sharing app? Yeah, I think there's two ways that with photo that we're planning on approaching this in terms of, like, um, respecting the longevity of images and the value that they have. Um one of the frustrations I've always had with social media is how temporary it is and how it's just, it forces you onto uh, a content kind of hamster wheel where it's, there's always this pressure and anxiety of constantly having to post something new, produce something new, produce something new, uh, which inevitably leads to um, things that are, can be a little more shallow and surface, um, you know, focused a bit. Um, there's good and bad with it, you know, but you know, it, what gets lost is the, you know, if somebody's doing a really long term project on something um, and they put a decade into it, like they just have to keep reposting those images over and over to get traction. Uh, but there's no way to really go back and like do, do an efficient search for them. Um, you just, you're kind of dependent on that account continuing to repost the work over and over essentially to remind you that it's there. So there, there's two things we want to do. One we want to tie the ability to sell prints directly into the photo app so that you're not building an audience and then having to like convince them to go to your website or leave, leave the app to go somewhere else to buy a print. Um, we think it's important for people to be able to just make that purchase directly while they're there. Um, you know, long-term we would like to utilize some um, AR things and um, to where, you know, you can kind of preview framed pieces in your own space or in your, in your own room. Um, and I, I think photo books are incredibly important. Um, it, if printing makes you a better photographer, making a, f a photo book makes you t 10 times a better photographer because that's, that's like doing everything on hard mode. So I would say we, we, were, we want to embrace printing and make that um, something that's easy and um, it can happen on the platform. We do some of that friction for people that they experience now. That, or they're not even getting that option through the social media uh, sites that are out there now. Because uh, if you have to move somebody to a different site, you're going to lose a bunch of people. It's just the reality of it. It's just too much friction. Um, the second would be we're going to respect image metadata, which is something new that none of the social sites do right now. 
So if you upload a site to Instagram or Twitter or threads or whatever, all that's stripped off. And what we're going to do is we're going to respect it and keep it. And then we're going to eventually use it for um, building a very powerful image search engine. And so we're going to have to kind of retrain photographers a little bit in the importance of image metadata. Uh, and because I hate hashtags. And so that way people can find an, images and experience the world through images through um, a powerful search engine, which doesn't really exist right now. I mean, if you go to, if you want to search for images, you're going to Google images, maybe Pinterest, but you're not, you're not really searching for images very well on Instagram. You can search hashtags, but you're going to get a lot of stuff in their social results that aren't accurate. You're going to get something random that, somebody put a similar hashtag on. Um, and you can't really search images very much. It's, it's like anything you can't, you know, you, you can search kind of by topic on things, but it doesn't really work that well. And so I think this is one of those features and things that um, people aren't really thinking about because they haven't seen it yet or experienced it. But I think what, if we can build it and if we can do it right, I think they will, you know, realize how powerful it is. And this kind of goes into... A bunch of other things. I think basically it's just having an accurate archive of images. And if it's accurate and it's searchable, then it kind of unlocks a bunch of stuff that we can do. You know, hopefully we, we could make kind of generative AI a, a more sustainable thing for photographers down the road because the data set would be clean and it would be accurate and it's searchable um, versus it just scraping, scraping the web and it, trying to like you know, do machine learning and identify what's in the images. Because frankly, that, that's actually a fairly important thing. Like I was, when you were saying metadata, because like, there are definitely sites out there that do it, like Flickr's been doing it for forever. Glass currently has like a metadata search function through camera type and the rest of it. But I think for me, the interesting part is the way that if you retain metadata, you can do things like prove provenance. And like a couple of years back, we were looking at things like NFTs and all these kind of other technical means to try and prove that there was ownership of a photograph or prove that the image hadn't been tampered with. And there was talk about using the blockchain to do this kind of work and try and make sure that we weren't seeing things that were clearly fake and passed off as real. And that, I guess that that's going to change too, because also having the providence of knowing which AI platform produced a certain output, what data set it was drawing from, those things those things can have real implications in making sure that artists are compensated for the work that they're doing. And it's led, there was led legislation at some point being attempted to be put through in, in the EU, EU and UK, I think, that was about how to compensate artists for machine learning models trained on their work. And I think it's interesting because what you're talking about is like, well, cool, come to our platform because we're going to have the attribution built in from the beginning. You're going to be able to see exactly what is in the photograph more, more, tangibly than on other platforms and it's not so much being more searchable per se although obviously that enables larger search but there's the opportunity for being able to keep track of who made who made this image originally like if it's made from ai what references is it using and how do we compensate those artists for the work that they did to help build this model like I'm saying this, obviously, putting words in your mouth. I don't know whether Photos got any intention of doing that, but was that a factor? When you were looking at this project and thinking, we need to build something, were you thinking of AI when you started that? I have been thinking about the app, photo app, probably since 2018, but really seriously since 2021. And that was more on the social kind of media side about how can we make kind of social better. 
And as I've devoted more of my just time thinking about it and working on it and the evolution of AI, yeah, it's become a huge part, you know, especially last summer because I really started pushing into it August 2022 is when I kind of committed to like, we're going to build this. And I think MidJourney and stuff was out like June or July last year in terms of like when it really hit. And so it was very fresh in my mind at the time. But yeah, I, I think that is something we hope to accomplish, which is, you know, it's a huge, like audacious goal. It's one of our long-term goals is, you know, allowing people to really have control over their images online, their social media experience, um, and unlocking some new, hopefully economic structures for photographers, because if, if photographers are going to survive, they need, you know, reinvention of how they make money and how they get paid. And if I think Jenner, Jenner is definitely going to be a thing and I don't think we can stop it. But so instead of like fighting against it, we need to figure out how to work with it. And the biggest problem is we need to have a respectable data set that will compensate the photographers and allow photographers to opt in or opt out of having their work in those data sets. So if somebody doesn't want to be involved and they should be able to say no, and that should be respected. But if they want to be involved and be compensated for it, uh, then there needs to be a fair economic structure for photographers that are creating that foundation of information that the, you know, that the AI needs to learn off of. Um, and they should be, you know, should be compensated for it um, all around because it's going to, it has a ton of value. It's going to be used all the time. So it's, you know, it's, it's something we're, we don't have the exact answers for right now, but the first step for us is the metadata and making a clean database and archive. And then from there we can build, you know, we're going to have to collaborate with companies and figure out how to come to an agreement on how to make this and kind of invent a new economic model for people. But, you know, I've had conversations with people behind the scenes that are, have dabbled and are kind of working and thinking through this type of problem as well. Um, and so there, there's people out there it's just kind of connecting with them, networking and figuring out over time. So the main thing for us is just getting traction on the app. Like is, once we launch the app and if we get traction and it grows and that proves that people want it. And then once, once, once you get traction, then the attention and everything will come after that. And then doors kind of open up to having conversations. And it's pretty clear that you care about photographers' best interests. Like you mentioned earlier on, making sure people are compensated for AI, trying to offer them ways to sell in their work. All these things show that you've got the photography community at heart. And I wanted to thank you for that, frankly. But additionally, you, you kind of like came onto an interesting topic because we've all seen recently there's been a proliferation of new social media coming out. We've seen applications like Vero be a direct reaction to Instagram, basically doing bad things with licensing agreements. We've seen threads launch this week. Uh, we've seen a, a range of new social media platforms become more and more problematic. Like Twitter is obviously having huge problems right now. And uh, we're seeing like Mastodon and all these other companies and are trying to innovate and take advantage of the fact that there's a bit of an, an absence of trust. And in the end, like everybody always comes up against the issue of network effects. So with threads, like we've seen the platform blow up because essentially they hijacked an existing platform and said, like, if you're on there, you're on here as well. And made it really easy to sign up and almost impossible to, to delete your account. But that's, that's another, another topic for another day. How, how do you feel that that 
that kind of kind of need for a mass network weighs on you as somebody that's looking to release a new social networking app? Is it something that you think needs critical mass from the beginning, or does it start small? How do those early days of launch look for you? What we're going to target is just really talking targeting kind of the creative 2D community. Obviously, the people that are interested in what we're doing, there's a lot of artists, um, a lot of photographers, but I've had other types of artists interested, people that are doing like painting or illustration, um, potters, like ceramic artists, things like that, just because their reach on social media is pretty horrible right now. They don't want to mess with the algorithm, essentially. For us, I think if we can get the creative community online and we can get art buyers, people that are either like photo editors or people that are going to would like to buy art. And that, that kind of creates like a whole, at least mini ecosystem from there. Um, and then from there, it'll be our job to kind of figure out how to scale up through marketing and um, kind of advertising and try to create a, a buzz for it. It's going to be a challenge, but any project like this, I'm kind of in it for the long haul. The fact that something like threads went to hundred million users in five days is, you know, the fastest thing. It's like a, you know, world record essentially. Our journey is not going to be that journey. Our journey is going to be a lot slower, and I'm, I know that's coming, and I'm fine with it. So our job is to make sure we have enough money coming in to keep the lights on, um, and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll scale it from there. Probably in the social is um, there's been a lot of trust loss, and a lot of people don't like, you know, Meta, Zuckerberg, and Elon's kind of seem to have gone crazy a little bit. It all stems back essentially to just the advertising model, the, the incentive structures of how these things are built. And it's all about your attention. They want to consume as much of your attention on a daily basis as possible. So they don't care about photography. They don't care about art. They don't care about anything. All they care about is what can they serve you next in your feed that will keep you scrolling so that they can sell more ads. And that's literally it. We're kind of making a bold choice to not have ads because we feel like it's a horrible incentive structure that leads down some very, very dark paths. I'm currently reading through The Chaos Machine, which is a book I highly recommend if you've uh, not read it or if anybody wants to learn more about social media and kind of the negative effects of it. I mean, this, you know, it's stuff that we don't hear about a lot in the United States, but there's some of the stuff is. You know, basically, there's just, you know, there's people that have died, genocides that have happened and stuff where Facebook and, you know, Meta could have stepped in and they didn't. They chose not to because it goes against their monetization structure. Long term, there's going to need to be some um, something that people would pay for over time. You're kind of talking about professional network to start with. It sounds like what you're saying is that we need artists and art directors. We need, um, we need graphic artists. We need, we need as many people as possible. Um, that can produce artwork and we need people that buy it. And we're going to try and connect one to the other. And frankly, I think that's important because Threads is a prime example. Like the first day of getting on there, the number one thing I saw is I'm sick of people selling to me. I'm sick of people selling to me because the fact is that they're not there for that. But when you're on LinkedIn, people don't have that argument. People don't complain about being sold to when the entire conceit of the platform is to network professionally. And I think context is important. So I can go on threads and talk about how much I enjoy photography, the love of the craft, the different equipment that I want to use, or the color palette I want to develop, or the paper that I'm testing out, because I'm interested in it. And other people that are interested in it can follow me. But when that relationship changes to, like, I have something to sell, please buy it from me, it feels uncomfortable because that isn't why we're there. 
we're not there for that. We're there to try and enjoy ourselves, to enjoy photography as a hobby or feel like a craftsman or there's all sorts of different reasons. But that context is important. And I think by framing this primarily as a professional network for creatives, that does do something different. It's an interesting take on, on, on the kind of idea of social media. Because rather than it being built around the water cooler model, it's built around the, the portfolio exhibition model. Like, here is my book. Consider me for work, please. For me, that's where we're starting. I think long term, I would like it to be a mass market network. The, you know, the long term vision would be, you know, people would get on there to post um, their family pictures and things because they know that we're going to protect it and we're going to protect their privacy and their data. And we're going to make a strong digital archive of their family the way that, you know, I think when we do printing here, we want to have physical archive for people. Um, I think there's not a lot of great, easy solutions to have a digital archive. Um, and to be able to, if we take so many pictures, I think there's a need for consumers to be able to go through their family photos and find images that they've taken in the past and relive those moments very easily. But that's more long-term type stuff of problems we see with the consumer side that we would like to solve. But yeah, I think starting out would definitely be like a creative professional network essentially is what we're starting with. And then, you know, we'll hopefully grow into, we'll build on top of it over time. Hopefully we'll build a different, more humane, you know, company that has some moral and ethics with it, uh, that they'll trust us with their images in their kind of private moments. Um, and that's why they would consider, you know, using us and sh sharing with family and friends. So you're not easy place to share with this, a small circle and you don't have to share with the world all the time. Um, I think ultimately we want the users to have control over their experience on social. So they should be able to control instead of that being, have an algorithm dictated to you. I think long-term the future is algorithms need to be customizable based on each user. So you can choose how many suggested posts you see and you can tweak it yourself. So it's, it's built into how you enjoy it versus the company, you know, having ultimate authority. Which makes sense because I think Mosseri, the, the CEO of Instagram, was on record recently in a reel saying that they literally recommend content that you interact with more often. And very often, if something is clickbaity and you end up falling for it, it means that eventually it's a race to the bottom. If you click on clickbait, you then have to actively get yourself out of this spiral of the lowest common denominator. And even if you're diligent with it, you can still end up with absolute garbage fed to you in the feed just because you've made poor decisions interacting with content because you didn't really know how those kinds of assessments were made. And I think being more transparent about that and being able to say, like, actually, no, hang on, I didn't really want to see a bunch of this. I only wanted to like, look at that one post. And like, you want to be able to dig yourself out of the hole you dug for yourself sometimes. And there's also issues with kind of the echo chamber effect that if you do constantly kind of interact with the same content, you start to believe that that's all, that all that's out there and you don't see everything else, which is obviously hugely dangerous. But to try and move away from a bit of a negative topic, I want something a bit more lighthearted. Obviously, throughout this, the, the kind of, throughout interacting with you, obviously, very one side of it to this point being a listener and then following your career, it's always been interesting to me to see how your own photography practice has changed. Like I said, initially a news photographer, then weddings and commercial. What does your own photography practice look like, now, like right now? Are you, are you producing work for fun, for work? Like, how do you interact with photography personally? Yeah, I don't really shoot much anymore so i'm kind That's of bad. um yeah i'm uh you know i take pictures obviously when i'm like going on vacation or 
take some stuff with my phone occasionally that I, I find interesting, but I definitely don't photograph that much personally anymore. I just don't have time right now. Our kids just started driving. They're 16 and all that. So I uh, kind of went through a really busy phase, but you know, running, getting ready to start running two companies, I don't see me having much time. Uh, I, you know, I have, I have dreams and things of things I'd maybe like to do one day, but I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, when I'm 70, maybe I'll pick up the camera again and really start doing a project or something when I can retire, whatever. But to be honest, I think there's kind of too much of a stigma around this anyway. Like, there's this kind of badge that people wear when they're in the photography industry that they're still the working photographer and like they're carrying it all. But can you imagine? You just said it quite rightly. You're running two companies and you're running a podcast, which takes time as well. And then trying to maintain a photography practice on top of that is it's a hell of a responsibility. And, and I think that there really isn't enough kind of slack given to people that start out as photographers and transition to something else that support careers. Like my lab owner, the, the person that prints my work is no less of an artist than I am. He just has a different medium. Like when I provide him with a raw file, he, he spends time with those images to make sure they look stunning. There's craft in there. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit kind of, what's the best way of putting it? It's, it's almost like you're wearing a badge of honor for being able to, to remain a photographer while also doing something else. When actually you probably might be best to serve like dedicating yourself to the other craft. Like, there's a, a, a marketer and a Derek. He, he started as a photographer primarily, but realized that he had a huge marketing career prior to this. And every photographer was making the same marketing mistakes. So rather than continuing on his career, he started just trying to help the people around him. And now he's too busy for a lot of the photography work that he would have taken before. And frankly, we need that. <laughs> like, as an industry, we need people that are willing to kind of start out with a love for the craft get a full understanding of what it means to be a photographer and then produce products that are built with us directly in mind. Now, I guess the worry is that if it's something super closely related, like if you're selling education, you might forget what it's like to take a photograph at a wedding or the industry might change significantly in the information he gives out of date, which is fair enough. But honestly, I, I kind of like that you, you said that, that you're not currently, you're not currently working as a photographer. You're not currently taking photograph photographs on a regular basis, but the thing for you is that you understand the community. So when you when you want to produce something, you want to do something that's going to be genuinely helpful, something that's going to edify people to try and help them to, to make more money, to stay in business and sustain something. So again, like thank you for your honesty. And, and two, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think it's kind of ridiculous that we kind of require that people remain a photographer just because they're related to this industry. Something I personally struggle with, I think, is like you get your identity from the career you do or the work you do. And, you know, for much of my life, since 1997, you know, I've kind of always labeled myself a photographer. You know, I've been doing something in the photo industry since 97. And lately, really this year, well, I guess the past couple of years, I've been trying to get more comfortable with the term like entrepreneur, like not a photographer, I'm like an entrepreneur now, like, and that not feeling weird <laughs> kind of a thing where it's like, I start companies a bit, um, but they're all photo, you know, related, but yeah, it's, it's hard when your identity is wrapped up into something. And it's weird now because we're, everybody's wears like 10 different hats. You know, it's not like 20 years ago, but now it's like, you're a, you're a photographer, but you're also a content creator, but you're also like the marketer. We're also the advertising executive, like, you know, so it's, 
you kind of have to be good at a lot of things to a degree just to get a foothold in anything and get started. Something too that I've always beat myself up over is, and I wish what I, if I could go back and kind of talk to myself when I was younger, is that I feel like there's a lot of pressure to specialize in things and to dive like really deep into one thing. Uh, but I've really, really become okay. Like I'm a generalist, right? Like I'm interested in a lot of a wide range of things. I'm not particularly like an expert necessarily in any one thing, but I like taking a step back, looking at things, looking at culture, how things are moving from like a 30,000 foot view, and then trying to make unusual connections that um, if you're too close to something, you, you can't back up and see new connections that need to be made. And so I'm trying to embrace that role and, you know, being like, yeah, I don't know a lot about X topic, but I'm interested in it. I learn a little bit about it, but then, you know, I want to hire people to work with me that they're the experts in that topic, not me. You know, I just need to understand enough of it to understand how it functions and the value of it and how to connect it to this other thing that I want to connect it to, to form a new project or a new business or a new thing that we're building. Well, think about it from a programming point of view. Look, if you find somebody that can do design and coding and all the rest of it, you call them a unicorn. But in the photography industry, if somebody, if somebody only does like, only does weddings, that's a badge of honor. And in the same way, if they, if they only do bold commercial, like commercial, like cricket photography, like they do some kind of sportswear photography, they, they consider it to be a badge of honor. And actually sometimes it's the case of it being a simple marketing message and it's not actually necessarily an asset. Whereas if you're a photographer who can produce video content and you can produce really high quality concept work and you can do basic marketing and branding work, you can end up addressing a different client to that specialist. And fair enough, it's probably not in the same budget and you're probably not being considered by every single person. But having a broad skill set is genuinely an advantage for an awful lot of people. And you're right, there is like a very quick kind of reaction to say, like, just niche, just niche. But that kind of assumes that there's an audience for the thing that you want to niche into as well. So there's definitely a bit of like market analysis that has to happen and all the rest of it. And I think what you're saying is in your case, you'd rather be the one doing the market analysis. But find out where the gap is. So maybe there is somebody that needs ultra niche like sports photography. Maybe there's somebody that needs ultra niche, like only brand identity specialism for photographers in a certain niche. But the fact is that if you're the person assembling that team, that is a higher level role because you have to have the skills to see where those people fit. Whereas if you're doing the niching work and you're focusing on the craft, that can be hugely edifying, but you're kind of waiting for somebody to pick you as well. And I think maybe part of the reason you don't really want to do that so much anymore is you're getting tired of waiting to be picked and kind of enjoying a little bit more about making your own thing. I'm sure with like the success of the Musea Lab and all that kind of stuff, that you you probably wouldn't want to go back to waiting for somebody else to select you because why would you? Yeah, I've never been one to um, wait on, on people to pick me or to have a boss. Like I've always hated having a, a boss kind of a thing. So I've always wanted to just carve my own path. And I think that's probably the reason I was interested in photography is because I could, you know, just be a freelancer and do my own thing and make my own schedule. If there's a problem I can identify, I tend to be like, I'd just rather make my own solution than to um, rely on somebody else's solution to a degree. You know, it's one that's like, oh, there's a bunch of print labs, but it's like, I'll just, I think there's a, there's a missing type of lab in the U.S. And so, you know, it's like, I'll just start, start my own. So something I'm going through with the photo now, which is, it's been really cool to see how many people are already backing it and supporting it and even like financially donating a little bit of money to like help us keep it off the, and get it off the ground has been, you know, extremely humbling for me 
you know, I'm, I'm not a programmer. I don't know how to program. I don't, I can't do that. So I have to like, work with people to do that. Yeah. It's, it's just been good for me personally to like realize that like some of my hangups early on as not being a specialist is, um, you know, there's things I can do in the world that still create value for people. It gives me, it gives me something to do and a journey to go on. So. I think honestly, this is the first time I've had a conversation about the way that we could try and protect artists from being taken advantage of by companies building AI models. That isn't a conversation I've had before on the podcast. We talked about AI before, but never about sourcing images and all the rest of it. I think it's important, especially when so many companies right now are being built around AI that photographers themselves are using, when there's not actually a great deal of insight as to exactly how those models are being built, what role your work has in the ongoing model that's used to train these things. So even the social side of side of the app out of the way, like being able to build a database with meaningful information that will help protect photographers' income in the future, like genuinely forget the social side. That in itself is interesting to me because I think it's something that has to happen. And it's been pretty clear that from the beginning, you've been interested in the success of other photographers. You want people to come with you. And when you build these projects, you're not doing it on the, on your own. Like even from the beginning of the Museo Lab, like it, it was never, whenever you talked about it, it was always in the sense of here are the photographers who we've helped succeed. And you allowed them to kind of be the voice of the company because you're like, well, no, it's, it's pointless me saying it's valuable when actually there are all these people here that are making a living because of what we're doing. You're going to start getting stories like that, especially if you start making decisions that protect people's like creative ownership, help them get access to people or make the sales process easier. All of those things are going to be greatly appreciated by the photographers that ultimately end up using your platform. I think there's a lot of fear and anxiety among photographers right now that they feel like they're not going to be needed anymore in the future. Yes, like generative AI is going to become a thing and that it's they're going to be, in a way, competing against it. But I think we're going to have to, at least within that realm, I think we have to shift um, one, of the, one of the potential roles of photographers I think there will be a new need and always a need for f- fresh images of the world because these are the photographers are the ones that go out into the physical world. Co- you know, essentially they're collecting the visual data of the world and bringing it back and they post it online. What we don't need is generative AI that's just making more AI from other AI images. You know, it's kind of like it's inbreeding in a way. It's like, you know, it's making new AI off of old AI. It doesn't reflect reflect reality. Reality out in the world is always going to be shifting. It's always going to be changing. So we always need humans going out, capturing new, creative, interesting work, reflecting back. And then they need to be compensated for that work for gender AI that's producing probably mostly like commercial type usage anyway, branding, advertising type things. The other thing is we need to, as gender AI becomes more prevalent, there's going to become a need for um, transparency on what is human-made and what is synthetic because misinformation is going to become a huge problem, like deep fakes and things like that. Having a transparent system of this is half you know, human-made, this is half computer-generated, or this is 100% computer-generated. Whatever those levels are, it needs to be transparent so people know what they're looking at. And we can avoid, hopefully, some of these potential pitfalls of humanity where some lies can be spread pretty rapidly through images. Um, I think um, a couple months ago, 
kind of heard a quote. I think it's from Steve Jobs. It was more in a podcast that was talking about a book they read. So it's kind of down a rabbit hole, but, but it's totally paraphrased, but it's something like basically like the world is built by people that are just like you or something, that kind of a thing. Like they just essentially decided to kind of do it. The people that have built these companies, they're really no different than anybody else, essentially. And that the world is more malleable than you give it credit for. We feel like it's fixed a lot of times and that you can't make something and create change. Um, But you can, and people have done it, especially as you studied great companies. You can see how they change things over time. Um, It's a lot of work and a ton of sacrifice, and it's not easy, but it it is possible. So something I try to keep in the back of my head right now. So go back to the, the sourcing of imagery for AI. Do you think that at some point social media platforms are going to be under scrutiny for leaking this kind of information or being a source of data scraping and like having generative AI start to use the images that we previously thought were going to be kept private? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, I mean, there's lawsuits and stuff going on right now for against OpenAI and some of these other platforms, um, you know, for using it artists work and things really without their permission because they're just they're just scraping everything they can get their hands on and they're not really telling you who's in the data set or not so it's like if you post a picture of your kid your son or daughter's face may be part of the data set to create this other thing and it's like are you like really okay with that or not yeah and so there's too many too much it's too much of a black box so i think these tools can be uh can work for us in the future but it just needs to be transparent. And I think anytime there's a black box of things of like, we don't really know how it works or there's not a lot of information on it. There's just too many secrets, too much power. There's too much money flowing into systems like that to not get corrupted. So we need to have something that's more open and transparent on what's going on. So, you know, it's definitely something we hope we can do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, look at algorithms on Instagram. Like how often have people been saying, I've been shadow banned. And then when eventually, years later, Instagram provide clarity on it, it turns out it's, it's true and not true. But the hysteria that builds up around these kinds of things, because there isn't clear information and it isn't obvious what you're supposed to be doing or how your data is being treated or what the rules are, it makes it a lot harder for you to act in a productive fashion. So I think, again, the more you can do to, to add transparency there, the better. But the reason I asked the question was because basically everything you talked about right now works on the assumption that AI is using imagery that it shouldn't. And I wanted to say the quiet part out loud because that, that is the worry. The worry is that your imagery, whether you like it or not, is being scraped by some of these AI models, either knowingly or unknowingly. And as a result, you're contributing to something that you don't have any control over. You might be compensated for. And it isn't conspiratorial to say that. It's not because it, it actually is happening. We know already that some of the, the data sets that ChatGPT is built off is just literally just an archive of the internet. So there's, there's not a lot we can do to control that now because it's already been trained. But the reason why it's so important is because, as you said, like how do you control what's fed into these things to make sure it's honest and true? And how do you build those systems that support that? This is definitely not the way I expected this conversation to go, but I'm kind of enjoying it. So, so yeah, it's, honestly, my post is great. Look at, one of the one of the things for me is that I'm really interested in startup and tech companies as well, like outside of photography. But there, there are commercial projects that I work on my own photography, videography business. And really often we're talking to tech startups and creators that are doing this kind of work. And it's always interesting seeing where they see technology going. But it's been a while since I've dealt, dealt with anybody in other social networking or image making space because usually it's... When you work in commercial, you go where the money is, like aerospace, you go for 
like ele- electric vehicles, there's a lot of money in that right now, like aviation, all that kind of stuff. Um, but either way, like it's it's been really interesting hearing this from like a perspective of somebody that's trying to build a social platform and do something for photographers and for a general audience. With all that said, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that you, you spared like over an hour with us today. So thank you for that. Um, can you let can you give us a little bit of a plug? Like, tell us where people can go to find out more information about Photo, about Museum, and about any of the future projects that you might have coming up. Yeah, so uh, Photo App. Just the website is fotoapp.co. Um, we have a Substack that there's a link to there. Um, that's the, really the best place. That's kind of where we do our email newsletter right now. So we're hoping to do private beta in August, um, and then hopefully public launch this fall sometime. Um, so there's just we're starting to really build up a lot of moment, momentum, and I'm going to be. Um, you know, communicating a lot more on like what's going on with the app um, where we're at on a lot more consistent basis, um, you know, the rest of the year. So that's a great place to connect with us there. Um, Musea, uh, the website for that is musealab.com. If you're yeah, in the U.S. or Canada, if you're, you know, we don't, we don't do a lot of international shipping right now. Um, it's really expensive. But if you have clients in the U.S. or Canada, we would love to talk with you. Um, yeah, we do everything from printing all the way up to framing. We're getting ready to add a new album, a Lay Flat album product um, that we're really excited about. So we've been testing and prototyping it and making sure we get all our everything you know straightened out. Um, yeah, those are really the two places. So I don't really plug any of my personal accounts very much though because i don't really post on them hardly ever <laughs> so. honestly michael thank you so much for spending the time with us uh with that said everybody we'll catch you again next week